surprised me it was just over. It's like, oh, I need to get up there. So I guess that's what happens when we don't use the songbooks anymore. I don't know when it's the end of the song. So uh, good morning. If you would, let's open a Bible together to is Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is where we'll be centering our thoughts this morning. Appreciate John, the work he did in leading us in song. And it is good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We're really glad that you're here. Really glad that you've taken the time to be here with us and to make plans, especially those who are traveling, made plans to uh, interrupt their travels and come and worship God with us. We want you to feel welcome, and if we can help you, please let us know how we can do that. But thank you for being here this morning. I want to read in Exodus 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So this is after Jehovah has delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery and brought them to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And after they have seen the presence of Jehovah descend on the mountain, and after they have received commands from Jehovah, those ten commandments, including the second commandment which says, don't make any carved images. So after all of that, They decide, the people, let's get Aaron to make us gods. Have you ever wondered, why do people do that? Why is it that humans enjoy making idols? I want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. I want to talk about what we're going to call the idol impulse. Humans are hardwired to worship. I was reading this week about the fact that Anthropologists tell us every civilization in the world has some form of religion, all of them. But most of those religions emphasize idol worship. They worship, but they worship gods that have a physical representation. And Christians are warned about that. Not only are Jews, as these Jews were warned about it from Mount Sinai, but Christians are also warned about it. And I believe that's an impressive and important thing. Because we seem to think very often in 2020 in America that idolatry is not the kind of problem it seems to be for the ancient Israelites. I want to remind you of a couple of those warnings. This is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. It says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's from our text here in Exodus 32. It says, don't be idolaters like they were talking to Christians. And this is, well, it looks like I just ran out of batteries here. This is uh, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But what's interesting, too, is that in the New Testament, you also have this thread that sometimes we can be idolaters without a physical idol. And so you have a statement like this in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So here we don't make a golden calf, but instead we worship and we idolize money, and so it becomes our God. And that raises some very interesting questions for us. Is it possible for us to have the same impulses ancient peoples did and fulfill them in slightly different ways. And in doing so, have something earthly in us. Can it be that there's no physical idol, but there is still idolatry? 
That's what I want us to think about. So the basic idea this morning is I want us to ask the question, why would we gravitate toward idolatry? And why does that frustrate God to such an extent? And then how do we struggle with that today? That's our goal this morning. We're going to talk about the idol impulse. So first of all, I want to just emphasize the fact that the reason why idols thrive is because we want to worship, but we want to worship in a certain way. And the first thing I want to say about that is we want to worship something we can see. Look in Exodus 32 and verse 1 again with me. Exodus 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So the people are scared that Moses has not come down from the mountain. They are afraid. Because remember what Moses signals to them. They have known Moses now for all the time of the plagues and the exodus and the Red Sea crossing. And now Moses has become their intercessor. He has gone to God on their behalf and has brought down the message from God to them. So Moses is their leader and the representative of God. And now we don't know what's happened to him. We're stranded in the desert and there's no one to lead us. We need a God. And look specifically in verse 1. He says, up, the people say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. That's what Moses did. But Moses isn't here anymore. And then it also says in verse 1, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So he brought us up out of the land, but now we don't know where to go because Moses is gone. And so when Aaron does make this golden calf, look down at verse 4. In verse 4 it says, He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are the gods now who can finally replace Moses, who had brought you up out of the land of Egypt, but now he has disappeared. The golden calf is a replacement for Moses because how can we follow someone we can't see? Moses is not here anymore. So the impulse that we see in this beginning part is that we want to worship something that we can see because that's going to be easier for us and more dependable for us. And I just think we need to observe. It's very challenging for us as physical people, as people with eyes for physical things, to worship a God that we cannot see and therefore, we cannot always be sure of his presence. Idolatry gives us a simple physical representation that we can focus our attention on. We can look at it. We can see it. It's always right there. It is tangible for us. But that is exactly what seems to bother God about idolatry. Is that we take the majesty of God and put it into something that we can see. So leave your marker, your finger here in Exodus 32. We'll come back in just a moment. Let's go over to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4. Listen to how God describes this prohibition on idolatry. This is through the mouth of Moses, who, yes, eventually does come down the mountain. In fact, they're making a golden calf hastens his return down the mountain because God says, basically, uh, you need to go deal with this problem. Look in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15. Moses says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, 
out of the midst of the fire. Horeb, by the way, is another word for Sinai. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Deuteronomy 4, 19 now. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, verse 23, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So in this section where God says, be careful about idolatry, he says specifically, this is why. In verse 15, since you saw no form on the day that he spoke to you, verse 16, beware lest you make a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male and female. So if you didn't see a form, don't try to make God into a form. Because what that would mean is you're not relying on an accurate representation of God. You're making it up. You are making God into something that is like something else you know. And that's a problem because God is unlike anything we know. He's unlike anything we have seen. He is unlike any of the creation he has made. Instead, he is the creator. And see, when we do make God into something we can see, we bring him down to the level of us and we filter him through our finite minds so that instead of being who he is, he becomes something that we create. And we can only make him. Did you notice he keeps saying this over and over again? We can only make him in the likeness of something else. And he goes through the whole list. I mean, it's the whole list of all these created things. And he says, don't make me like a fish. And don't make me like a bird. And don't make me like the sun and the stars. I'm not them. And so you have the question then, if we're going to make God into the likeness of something, what do you liken God to? That's the question Isaiah takes up. Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. God's going to say, uh, what do you think I'm like? What's your frame of reference for how you picture God? By the way, this is one of those really majestic texts that I feel like I can never do justice to, try to work through it and preach from it, and it just it stands above anything I can say about it. Isaiah 40 and verse 18. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? 
Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So what's the proper comparison for God? If we can only make it of a likeness of something, what do you liken God to? He says, there's nothing like me. Everything that you see and know, I made it. So don't confuse my creation with me and assume that you can make me out of something that you can see. An idol is just made of wood and metal. Who made the wood? Who made the metal? You want to make an idol like the stars that you see in the sky. And sometimes ancient peoples did this and they worship the sun. He says, "Well, well, who set the stars in their place? Who calls the stars out by name and number? And make sure they are where they're supposed to be. He says, don't liken me to my creation. Don't make me into something you can see. So if God is so incomparably great, so beyond anything we have seen or known, why would we think that we could fashion him? But I want you to experience and to feel this tension. That we have a hunger for something that we can see, but we can't see God. And we want to worship the likeness of something. Even today, we make statues of men and women that we want to remember. And we make the likeness. Or we see pictures, and they are the likeness of that person. And yet, there's no way we can liken God to anything. We don't have a picture. We don't have a statue. It just won't work. The Bible stresses that God is invisible. That no man has seen or can see him. That Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Paul says we look to the things not that are seen but that are unseen. And idolatry is especially that temptation to bring God down and eliminate the need for us to believe in a God we cannot see. I'm convinced that a lot of us really believe this. That if we were just able to see God, maybe just one time, then it would all be easier, right? I wouldn't have any trouble believing, living my life for God, doing the right things. If I could just see him. And God is telling us that's exactly what he doesn't want. That's exactly the problem. Because God wants us to worship him in the absence of sight. Let's turn back to Exodus 32. So we want to worship something we we can see. The second thing I see in this text is that we want to worship something we can design. So here the people have come and Moses is waiting. He's taken too long on the mountain. And so the people say, Aaron, make us gods. And Aaron seems to jump right to it. He seems to have a plan immediately, at least the way the text reads. Verse 2, Exodus 32 and verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So bring me your gold. Remember when the Israelites left Egypt, they asked their Egyptian neighbors for gold jewelry and different things. And it says that's the way they plundered the Egyptians. 
as if the Israelites actually conquered them. And so now they have this gold jewelry, and Aaron says, hey, this would be great. We could make a really awesome idol if everybody just gives a little bit of the gold that they have. And so they melt down these, this jewelry, and Aaron takes a special tool and works with the gold. I, I'm impressed by that. I think that would be a very challenging thing to sculpt an idol out of this, but Aaron evidently is able to do it. It's impressive. It is beautiful. And he makes God into a fashion everybody is more comfortable with. The idea of it being a calf, the idea of it being something physical, a creature, may come from Egyptian influence. Remember, how long had the Israelites seen all the Egyptians with all their statues and idols? And now here they are on their own, and there is this impulse. Let's make our own God, the God who is greater than the gods that we knew in Egypt. And especially, I want you to notice that they are not trying to worship a different God. This is intended to be a representation of Jehovah God. Look in verse 5. In verse 5, they specifically say, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Altars are part of Jehovah worship. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And your version probably has those all caps Lord. That means this is Jehovah God. This is the Lord. So they're going to make burnt offerings to God. And the calf will be there for them to bow down to. So the idea here is they want an idol because they want something they can figure out how to put together. It's made up of their stuff in the way they think they would like best. They want to design the calf. And they even have specific rules about how the design is going to work. Aaron does it in a certain way. And the Old Testament talks a lot about the design of idols. I want to show you that in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. I know we were in this part of Isaiah a moment ago, but I want to jump back over there for just a moment. There are several uh, little, almost mocking descriptions of idol design in the Old Testament. And this is one of them. You'll see what I mean when it's kind of mocking, because these are uh, the words of a prophet who says, This is silly. And yet, this is what people are doing, and they don't realize the silliness of it. Isaiah 44 and verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes it to a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. You can hear the tone in that. Isaiah is incredulous. So you got a piece of wood, and you know it's just wood. I know you know it because you burn it, and you cook your food over it. And you say, oh, what a nice fire this is. So it's, it's not any inherent value in the wood, but then you take the other half... 
and you make it into an idol and you bow down to it. You bow down to a block of wood. Something you have made. And do you see how much description goes into this? You know, marking out this is exactly what this idol should look like. I'm going to use a compass and a ruler and a pencil and make it this design just really beautiful into the form of a man. It looks like my little man that I can bow down to and say, this is my little God. An idol is about worshiping our own creation. Something we made, not something that made us. And that kind of worship is really only one step up from self-worship where I'm worshiping myself and my genius and my brilliance. It doesn't honor other people. It doesn't look out to God. It merely worships my own design. Habakkuk says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. And especially the way that the Bible talks about idolatry in this way is that when we make an idol, we are exchanging the glory of God for something that we have fashioned from ourselves, the representation of a creature. So you have Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb. That's our scene in Exodus 32. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So they exchanged God for a cow, an ox. In Romans 1, Paul takes that same language. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice that word exchanged. They traded it out for something they could make, they could design. They exchanged God's greatness for a bull. You know, it's insulting, isn't it? When we liken humans to animals. If someone were to say, you're really a pig or a cow... We're offended. How much more to say God is a cow? I hope you hear in it how offensive it is to say God is something I tell him he is. But when we talk about worshiping something we design, I want to bring this home a little bit. We long for a God that we can tame and understand. So we make him up and we design him just the way we want him. Features we like. We're going to leave off everything we wouldn't like. We're going to make him exactly what we want him to be. Have you ever heard people say something like this? I just can't believe in a God who would condemn people to hell. What are we doing when we say things like this? We are saying, I don't like this feature of God. So I'm just going to cut it off. I'm just going to say, well, if I don't like that about God, it must not be true. I'm going to make God into what I want him to be. I'm not worshiping him on his terms. I'm worshiping him on my terms. I'm going to design my own God. Or I just can't believe in a God who doesn't leave me sufficient evidence to convince me that he exists. If God were real, he would do this. So what that means is I'm not satisfied with how God has revealed himself. And so I'm just going to say, I'm not going to serve him on his terms. I'm going to serve him on my terms. And usually that means that I'm going to just continue to worship, but worship some other manifestation of God, like my scientific knowledge or my political ideology or my money or my own brilliance or something like that. I'm going to find something to worship, but it'll be a God I make, not a God the way he is. So we want our own God. 
or we want to even be God ourselves. And this is the idol impulse, something we can design so that we are more comfortable. Let's go back to Exodus 32. The third thing I want to show you here is that we want to worship something we can control. Remember that the initial driver of the, the golden calf, the whole situation, is that Moses has taken too long on the mountain. So now, look in verse 4 of Exodus 32. Aaron has crafted this calf. It says, He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation said, and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So here are your gods, O Israel. You could just imagine the presentation of this golden calf. Now you don't have to worry anymore. We have a leader again. It's this statue. He built an altar, it says in verse 5. We at least remember that Jehovah wants that, right? He wants worship. He wants altars. And they have a feast to Jehovah. Verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they sit down in verse 6 and have this feast. And they eat and drink. And then they rise up to play. So, you know, this probably is the feast of the peace offerings that is a part of the Jewish worship. And, and that's all well and good. But it seems to degenerate into something else by, by that idea that they rose up to play. The appeal here is that we don't have to worry about Moses leaving anymore. Now we will always know where God is. We can worship him when we want and how we want. He is always right there. Where's God at? Oh, yeah, there he is. You always have him around. And especially, God, when we make him into an idol, God does what we want when we want, and we don't have to listen to him because an idol can't talk to you. So you get all the blessings of God helping without any of the rules of God. So it seems easier than this whole idea of God having his own personality and will, wanting certain things and not wanting certain things, God being uncontrollable, God sometimes doing things that are frightening, like coming down on Mount Sinai, like killing the firstborn. You know, and so if, if that's the way God is, I don't know, that's a little scary I would much rather have a statue that I can call out to when I need him and put him in the corner when I don't. Someone I can control. The problem is, we don't really get any help from things we make ourselves. Something we fashion is not something we can rely on. We can control it, but we're limited because it's only what we make. And so very often, when Israel goes into idolatry, they realize too late that there is no help coming from the idol. And so they will then cry out to Jehovah and they'll get responses like this. This is Judges 10 and 14. God says, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Hey, you want idols? Go for it. Why are you coming back to me? Well, it's because the idols didn't help, but God says, I I've had enough. Jeremiah 2.28, where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. So we want to worship something that we can control. But very often we discover that what we control isn't worth worshiping. Because if we can control it, it's less powerful than we are. 
We want to worship things we can control, but we can't control God. I will make this observation. Sometimes it seems to me that even our efforts to understand God can easily become idolatrous. It's as if sometimes we're trying to figure out like a a chemical reaction that you know if you mix these things, you always get this product that we want to learn that with God. You know, if you pray this way, if you give this money, if you treat people this way, God always does this. Because what we want to do is to say God is this way and I can take it to the bank and then I'm in control, not God. I can use God instead of God using me. But it's just a little hard to trust, isn't it? A God who is so powerful and yet doesn't act on my timetable and doesn't always answer my prayers and doesn't necessarily share my priorities. That's a God who is beyond my control and that can be frightening and frustrating. It's hard to feel scared and helpless like Israel does here. It's hard to have a God that you can't always know what he's going to do and how. It's hard to feel unsure if God is going to rescue or help you at all. But the warning is that because we get scared and because we feel insecure, we will be tempted to try to make our own God and forsake the true God. I want you to go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I don't know about you, but uh, most of that preach is pretty easy for me. You can look around our house. We don't have any idols. No statues around of different gods that we worship. And it does not seem to be a, uh, a major issue in America to talk about literal, physical idols. But I want to take these last couple of minutes and challenge us to think about how idolatry and the idol impulse has not ended just because idolatry in the way of the Old Testament is not as common a practice in our culture. And so I want us to think about what our idols are. And I want to do that by reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is describing these scenes that we have just been reading through and about how the children of Israel fell in the wilderness. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He says later in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I want you to notice. Paul says several things that are very important here. First, he says that we need to be careful that we don't want evil things, desire evil things the way they did. And he says specifically idolatry. And he says two times what you read there in the Old Testament is there for our learning so that you and I can be instructed. But in order to be instructed, we have to pay attention and not think that we're above it. Not think that I never have the idle impulse myself. And so I want to ask the question, what are our idols? And I just want to put this list on the board. And as I do, I want you to examine your own heart about this. First, 
our idols are money. Remember that Paul warned about covetousness being idolatry. You could also put stuff here, material possessions. The idea is I have things or I have money and it gives me a certain feeling of control and it gives me a certain feeling that I am free and I have the ability to get what I want. Our idols are people. Instead of God, we work to honor and please people. That could be ourselves. That could be people in our families. That could be people in our broader community or at our workplace. People whose opinions we care most about. It could be people that we idolize. Remember how we use that word in our culture. That is, we look up to them and we have respect for them. That could be some kind of politician. That could be some kind of thought leader. It could be some kind of sports hero. Someone that we say, that guy's got it figured out. I want to be like him. Our idols, our power and influence and status. That is, sometimes we want to control people. And so we accumulate and appreciate power. That can happen in a local church. That can happen in a business. That can happen in a family. It can happen in a community where we begin to say, wow, I have influence, I have status, I matter. And we are willing to go all out in pursuit of that power. That could be beauty, where we're concerned about our own physical appearance, where we're concerned about having things that are beautiful. Possessing beauty becomes a driving force for many. Or that could just be the idea of a good time. That is, things that make me feel good, that make me happy, that I enjoy And I'm always in the pursuit of that next great feeling. These are idols without the idol. The challenging thing is that there is an acceptable amount of each of these. And there is an acceptable place this can hold in our hearts. But we have to be able to be honest about the impulse that is universal to create gods we can see and design and control. So you might be asking, well, how do I know if this, one of these or some other thing, is my idol? Well, I think we have to begin with the question, is there anything in your life that you feel matters a little too much to you? It's a little too important. We have to ask the question, where do we go when we are hurting and upset? You know, sometimes we start to feel a certain way. We feel bad. We're disappointed. And what do we do? I don't know about you, but I go eat. We want to go do the things that make us feel better. And as if feeling better, that's the goal. When I feel better, that's what matters. Something can become an idol. When it's what comforts us in place of God. And we have to ask the question, what is it? that gets us truly, deeply upset. Do you ever have things like that? I'll confess this. 
There have been times in my life when my football team lost and I was disconsolate for days. Can I ask Sarah? I was rude. I was bitter. I had not yet accepted the fact that my team will never win. I cared too much. Don't you have things in your life like that where when that happens and something upsets you, you say, why am I so upset about this? You know, so-and-so, they have a problem with this and they, they just blow right through it. It doesn't upset them, it upsets me. It may be that our idol is threatened. So, for example, do you ever have it where you, you have a situation that causes you to spend a lot of money you didn't expect to? Air conditioner breaks down, somebody goes to the hospital, all of a sudden, you're out a lot. Why would that upset us to a degree that's disproportionate? Or do you ever have it where somebody gets mad at you and you just can't handle it? It just bothers you and it's all you think about all the time? Or do you ever have it where you feel frustrated because you're not getting ahead in whatever way? People are not respecting you. You're not advancing in the company. And it's something that you just can't get over. Do you ever have it that you look at yourself and you say, I'm not what I want to be physically. People don't like me. People don't love me. I'm not attractive enough. Maybe I'm getting older and it's deeply upsetting. Or maybe it's just I'm not having enough fun. I don't get to do the things I really love to do. Could it be that those are moments where our idols are being exposed? Now, the solution to idolatry, you know this if you've studied the Old Testament. The solution to idolatry is you don't toy around with it. You go tear those idols down. That's exactly what Moses does. Moses takes that golden calf and he grinds it all up and he puts it in the water and makes the people drink it. I don't suggest that. I am saying... We have to take action. We have to say, this is not right. There are rivals to God in my heart. But most of all, I want to encourage you, don't be naive about this impulse. Be aware of your own heart. What you don't want is to be an idolater without the idol. And it may help us to remember that God is independent And God is always who he is, and God is uncontrollable. He is not a God that we tame. He is a God that we worship. Would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And we're thankful for this example that you have preserved for our instruction. We pray that you'll help us to hear it and to apply it. Father, we're thankful for the way you love us and care for us despite our impulses and desires sometimes to run away from you. Father, we pray for the courage to face our own hearts and our own idols and to tear down the things that are rivals to you in our hearts and lives. Father, we pray that you'll help us to see with clarity and we pray that you'll help us and help one another to be devoted to following you most of all. Father, if there are things that need to change, we pray that you'll help us bring those things to our attention and give us the courage to do what needs to be done. Help us, Father, to be a group of people focused on serving you and tearing out the idols from our hearts. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. This is a time that we have set aside in this congregation to help you to make known needs that you have. If you are not a Christian and you want to become one by being baptized into Christ, having your sins washed away, this is a time, this is not the only time, this is a great time to let us know about that and we can help you by helping you to become one with Christ in baptism right now. But if there's any need that you have, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.